Woo! Welcome to the Summer Call Play Podcast. We are so happy to be with you today. Happy Tuesday. It's Tuesday. And I'm feeling all the hype on this Tuesday because it is the most wonderful time of year <laughs> in the running world. It's so great. Things are so awesome right now. There are so many incredible races, so many awesome stories. We can't wait to bring them to you. It's been so fun. World championships on the trails, world records falling on the track, NCAA track championships. Yeah. It's like boom, boom, boom. I just keep walking around all day singing, it's the most wonderful, wonderful time of the year. Year. Ooh, that was rough. Oh, no, Megan, that was so good. I rocked that duet. If I, if I do say so myself, I was incredibly good at singing there. You are so good at singing. No, Megan, I'm so bad. You, I'm so bad. You uplift us in this relationship. Yeah. I'm the one that's dragging us down. So I remember when I was in high school, I had a 30-minute drive to my high school. I lived in a very rural place. And what I would do is I got a superstition once that I sang all the way to school. All the way to school? All the way to school one time, listening to, you know, whatever the hip hop and R&B, you know, soundtrack was on the radio. And when I got there, I had a great day and then I rocked the football game and I really crushed it. So then after that, I tried to sing every single day on the drive. And occasionally someone would pass me and take a picture on one of those old flip phones because it was way back in the day of me just belting like with my mouth wide open trying to sing. That's incredible. Well, I recently ran a red light by accident trying to get home uh, to you so that we we do this like rapid baton handoff on weekends because I go for a long run and then I got to get home so you can go for a long run. In this case, the baton is a baby. <laughs> yes, exactly. We're handing Leo off. But there's a picture of me driving through this red yeah. light because I got a, I got a ticket for it. And I'm just sitting there with this like game face on. And that's yeah. how I feel like I, that's what I was picturing you before games. You looked so intense. You know what your look reminded me of? What? Grayson Murphy at the start line of the World Mountain Championships. Oh yeah. She was, I saw that game face and I was like, she's going yeah, yeah. gold. This is a preview <laughs> of what's to come. She's going to only have green lights in her future on that course. There was actually, so the World Mountain championships was broadcast on YouTube. And so you could comment on it, which yeah. was amazing. I mean, I feel like it would be so fun to watch Tour de France or, you know, some of these other really big events with people yeah. commenting on it. But there was someone called Robin in the chat and she was on team Grayson, just like us, but her comments were amazing. Yeah. She was like, she's going to take Tove out for lunch. <laughs> and this was who Grayson was competing against. And she, I was fully uplifting. That. Yeah. The live stream comments are a vibe because like some people are really on your side. So like, obviously we're rooting very hard for Grayson while watching this championship race. Um, but there are other people that don't necessarily necessarily feel the same in us. And honestly, some people that don't understand running that well. Um, so they were saying things during the live chat. And I was like, at one point I was like, Megan, I'm going to go into that live chat and I'm going to start commenting and I'm going to go for it. And Megan was like, David, take a deep breath. It's not your place to comment in a live chat when someone says something about your athlete that's not right. <laughs> I love confrontational, David. Yeah. Like, I feel like you do it like Sonny and Cher. Like, you have like that like share energy in all oh. of life. Yeah, yeah. But when you get out in the football field or when you get into the Instagram live chat, <laughs> you let your freak flag fly and you're like, I'm coming for you. <laughs> I think we bring that Ja Rule and Ashanti energy is kind of oh, what yeah. we do on the podcast. Yeah, except I feel like I'm Ja Rule, you're Ashanti. That's so true. Baby, baby. I'm trying to, trying to think of what Ja Rule's best uh, duet lines were. Can't do it on the spot. But it's so hard to think on the spot. It really is. Yeah, especially duets on the spot. <laughs> yeah, extra, yeah, yeah. extra hard. Singing isn't really our jam, is what I think people have learned. But we are so excited for everything. So we're going to talk to you about the World Championships today. We're also going to preview a little bit of Western states. Not too much. That's mainly going to be next week. Um, these next few 
few weeks are the coolest time of the year. It's just so fun. I'm so excited. And we're heading to California this week to yeah. go to Broken Arrow, to go to Western States. It's going to be Baby Leo's first Western States. We're going to have a kiddie pool for him at <laughs> Forest Hill. And it's going to be a unique challenge to keep a baby cool. I think everything within our coaching history has led us to this moment where we know everything about cooling for a baby at Forest Hill when it's 95 degrees. I'm a little bit concerned we might have to have a contingency plan with where Leo's going to go if he can't do the spectating thing at Western States. Um, but we'll see. What do you think? I'm excited. I think we're going to craft him the first six-month-old ice vest. That's true. Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah. Maybe this is a startup idea. It's a great idea. I feel like he would love it. Well, we took him on a hike yesterday, and he he didn't fuel very well before the hike. He hasn't no. learned. He really needs to focus on his carbohydrates. He really needs to think about his like pre-workout fueling. His but carb loading was quite poor. He got out, We got out two miles away from home, and he almost never cries. Yeah. And he started to throw a royal temper tantrum. <laughs> and it was a little startling. I mean, I think whenever a baby cries to me, I'm like, I can't focus on anything. Yeah, yeah. But when we were out there, he cried the entire two miles back. And I, I feel that way sometimes in running. It was his first major tantrum that wasn't in the middle of the night. Like Occasionally, he's had middle of the night tantrums. But his first mi middle of the day tantrum, we tried everything. We even played the Moana soundtrack, which has never failed to work until this moment. We actually sang the Moana soundtrack yeah, in a duet. That's true. And it was, I mean, we're not great singers. No, but we Ja Rule and Ashanti'd Moana. It, it was, was incredible. Good. It was really it good. Was objectively amazing. And he couldn't even hear it because no, he was no. screaming. <laughs> he totally blocked it out. And he just needed to get home to his fuel. So maybe that's the lesson for all of the runners at Western States. It's, as long as you stay on top of your fuel, on top of your hydration, you can do it. And also we probably need to have like an ice sponge for him to keep him cool. Well, I love that you said it was a lesson for runners because it was really the lesson for parents. We yeah. fucked up. <laughs> we did. We should have had some fuel for him. I was a major oops moment in yeah. parenting. And my boobs, I'm not breastfeeding like a ton right now. Yeah. And so I was like, well, he could have droplets from that boob <laughs> in the middle of this trail. But I figured he was just going to get even like more mad about that. Yeah, it's kind of like at Western States, you know, there's a lot of talk about mid cooling, mid-run cooling, and there's a lot of streams. So we're always telling our athletes, every stream you get by, try to wet yourself. Um, but later in the event, that can be taken to the extreme because some of the streams are just trickles. And there are stories of some of the top athletes trying to lay down in these streams that are literally literally just like a rivulet, just <laughs> kind of running down this thing. And that would be kind of like trying to breastfeed him right now. He would just get the smallest little bit. He wouldn't actually cool that much. So we need to get him home. Well, I would love a live feed of like, Adam Peter Goddard, Jim Walmsley throwing a temper tantrum and a little <laughs> rivulet of trickling water trying to get... Actually, it reminds me of Zach Miller. Yeah. So there was a viral video this weekend of Zach Miller at the World Championships and he got to an aid station and didn't realize that there was water to throw on yourself. They had this like broader bucket of water. Yeah. And so he was just taking bottles of Perrier <laughs> and just <laughs> dumping them on himself and it went viral. It was hilarious. It was the best video ever because I think there was probably a language barrier at the mm -hmm. aid station. Yep, yep. So Zach really needed to cool himself off. He's in the middle of the moment. And if anyone has ever seen seen Zach Miller race. It's the most intense, amazing thing of all time. Like you should go back and watch the videos from North Face, right? North, North Face 50 miler, Zach Miller. And it gives you like insight into what some of the best in the world can do in these races. And Zach Miller's notorious for pushing to the edge. He was clearly in that place of just being in the dark zone during this race. Well, he's like a steam engine. Yeah. That's how I could describe him. He rolls with so much force, but steam engines also get freaking hot. Yeah. And he showed up to this aid station and was yeah. like, I got to cool myself. I'm going to have a mechanical right so now. Sparkling water, sparkling water, sparkling water. And the reason it went viral actually is I think some like, troll or something from Europe was like, this person doesn't respect the environment and they're, you know, 
sullying the name of the United States of America. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about, man? He's just trying to get cool in the middle of a race where he's like one of the best athletes in the world. Um, but we might have to do that for Leo, like be dropping, you know, sparkling hydration on him, sparkling cider, just straight on Leo's head. What's even better actually is just pouring precision hydration on yourself. Yeah. You got to get some of those, like, I feel like maybe you can soak in the calories via your skin. <laughs> Precision's that good. You don't even need to put it in your mouth. You can put it in any orifice. You can even put it in your butt or you could just put it on your skin. It's, it's perfect. It can go in any different direction. Um, actually, on that note, precision nutrition. We weren't planning this, but SWAT 15, SWA 15 at Precision Checkout. Um, that shit is amazing. We had a bunch of athletes using it at the World Championships. I actually saw it being used by um, a professional cycling team during uh, the Dauphiné, which is a major bike race tune-up for the Tour de France. Really recommend that stuff. Try it out. Maybe we'll give that to baby Leo. It tastes so good. Yeah. But I also say this, it feels so good yeah. too. We had a we did a tempo date this weekend and we had precision in our water bottles. And I, I doused myself in that a little bit. <laughs> you did. I could feel it. I could feel it in my ears. I could feel it in my orifices. It was good stuff. Yeah, and the fire ants could yes. feel it too. Really <laughs> exactly. It. Actually, I wonder if you could feed a baby a gel. I'm sure you could, right? Like, why not? Like, um, I mean, I'm sure he's old enough at this point. He could probably have anything. Yeah. yeah. So maybe that's what we needed. If we had brought a gel, we wouldn't have needed to have a bottle. Honestly, we were so desperate yesterday. I probably would have given him a gel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was one of the more jarring experiences of my life. Like we got very lucky in that we have a baby that doesn't freak out too much. Though it's just a genetic thing. I think that's one thing we learned. He came out not like not freaking out. Probably if we have another one, which Megan is really beating me down with over time. Well, you acquiesced. <laughs> can I can I give the spoiler alert? You came oh, to no. me. You came to me the other week, and you're like, Megan. I'm sorry. I don't need to be a hard ass anymore. We can yeah. have another baby eventually. And my heart sang. <laughs> the insides, the precision hydration was just leaving my body in excitement. It was exiting in every orifice. It was great. <laughs> you jaw rolled from the soul. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. So I was just seeing that you were getting quite nervous about every step of Leo's journey. Kind of like, it's going to be the last time I experienced this maybe. And I was like, I can't have you be upset for the next like however many years that every little milestone is the only time you're going to get to experience it given what you've told me. Yeah. So what I thought is, I can at least lie to you now <laughs> and tell you, yes, we'll have 18 kids. That's fine. We can be like, I don't know, we can field like six basketball teams um, and that'll get us through the next couple of years. Well, it was, it was very meaningful to me. It's not going to be for a while. We, yeah. I have some trails to run, uh, some precision to consume uh, before we do this again. But I it, thank you for that. It well, made me very happy. Yeah. And if, you know, if we don't go an IUD route, Maybe it'll be sooner. <laughs> okay, we have the best episode for you today. Uh, we're going to start with a story about coaching. That is one of the coolest things we've ever heard. Then talk about the world championships. Do a recap and analysis, including the Grayson Murphy gold medal. I'm so excited. Coolest race ever. Uh, hot takes. We're moving up a little bit in the episode this week. I'm so excited to move up hot takes. Yeah. They, they deserve to be up there. It's going to be pretty soon that we're just going to say woohoo. And then we're going to get into 29 hot takes that take up the duration of the entire episode. Basically, the whole podcast kind of is our own hot takes. That's a good point, actually. We're just bringing the listeners in for these. Um, more big moments from the running world, including three world records, some theories on that as well. A discussion of training for shorter races. Please stick around for that if you're at all interested in how to get faster and how this applies to long distances too. Uh, four fun things, including some GI system thoughts for my fellow brethren out there with poor GI systems. I say, whenever we have GI system thoughts written on the outline, it's yeah. primarily driven by David. <laughs> yeah. you, have a, you have a lot of existential GI system thoughts. Well, I think it's one of those things people don't talk about much. And the yeah, people that have yeah. good GI systems just think it's normal. Yeah. And the people that have bad GI systems also think it's normal. So let's, <laughs> let's just bring it to the light. Um, and then we have a listener corner about shooting your shot. We also have a bunch of other topics that we might get to, might not, probably not. I'm so excited. For it's going to be ahead. so fun. Um, so we want to start with just a very brief story that we think will be um, incredibly meaningful to you, like kind of setting the tone for how 
running and sports in general are about the team around you. Well, you came into the kitchen yesterday and yeah. you told me this story and I was kind of like, I was busy doing something. I was kind of half listening. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. all of a sudden my ears peaked up during this and I was like, oh, this is so good. And then I got you goosebumps and chills. So if you're in this state where you're half listening right yeah. now, doing whatever you're doing, listen up because this is very good. I think some people do kind of just skim when we're bantering at the very front end of the episode sometimes. Well, that's actually a deep hug for me because yeah. I'm like, I don't know if you should really listen to that too closely. Oh no, Megan, our bantering is by far the best part. In fact, when we started the podcast, when it was just 30 minutes, we would banter a little bit. And what we heard from people is that's the part that they liked the most. And I'm sure there's people out there that just want us to get to the studies and the training, but you know, we need to make you dig for that gold. You need to get, it's all about the process of finding that gold, not just getting to it right away. And by people and the masses, you mean your parents, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. my parents. They're like, we want to hear you banter more. We like your banter. <laughs> and they're like, we don't care about training theory. We just want to hear you talk about Ja Rule and Ashanti, who they have to Google after they hear the reference. Okay, so here's the story. Um, it is about uh, Wake Forest baseball coach, Tom Walter. So a brief background on Tom Walter. Um, I didn't actually know this story at all, uh, but he started by coaching the George Washington baseball team. Uh, they were horrible, just won a few games a year. Um, he brought them to prominence nationally. Then he coached the New Orleans baseball team. And this was during Hurricane Katrina. Uh, they actually had to go play at New Mexico State oh, wow. around that time because, you know, New Orleans was flooded out. And at that time, they actually qualified for the playoffs um, for the College World Series, which is hugely unique for that program. And then he finally, he went to Wake Forest in 2010, which is when the story we're going to tell you begins. Um, and it is so exciting. So what happened was he recruited this athlete named Kevin Jordan. Uh, he was a superstar baseball player from Georgia, um, and Kevin was um, also going to be drafted by teams like the Yankees, but at the very end of his senior year of high school, all of a sudden he kind of got weak, and they assumed it was the flu or something like that, um, and all the scouting reports you read of him say, one of the best players in the country, but something happened mm -hmm. at the end of his high school career. And that's how what happened when he matriculated to Wake Forest. And the story is, I mean, just I, yeah. I don't even want to take a break to comment on this. <laughs> Keep going because the story is so good that I, I, I want to make sure people don't miss this. So when he showed up, something was definitely wrong. And he, he was diagnosed with um, a ACA or ANCA. Inca. Anca vasculitis. Actually, I don't know if it's Anca. In yeah. my head, it's ANCA, but in my head, I always say Anca. <laughs> I like Anca. Yeah. And then every time I say something in my head on the podcast, I get a little nervous. Yeah. Okay. So he needed a kidney transplant um, and his entire family got tested and no one was a match. And as soon as coach Tom Walter heard this, he went and got tested himself. Um, it took six weeks of tests. He found out that he was a match and that very day scheduled surgery to do a kidney transplant to this athlete that he hadn't even met that much. Like he knew them from going into the living room and recruiting him, but Kevin Jordan hadn't been able to show up to practice and things. So he hadn't actually been around him that much, but the commitment to him of coaching was so great that he's like, I'm going to do this. And sure enough, they went, did the surgery, did the transplant. And Kevin Jordan, within 15 minutes of waking up, said, for the first time, I felt like I wasn't going to die. Like he suddenly felt fully different from the bottom up. That is so wild. I have yeah. goosebumps over here for the second time. And <laughs> what I'm thinking about actually, as I hear the story for the second time, is this is an incredible way to subvert the NIL before Yo. the NIL was even a thing. Because so back in the day, you couldn't actually give money to recruit yeah. players. You couldn't set up any recruiting deals. But you know what you can give to recruit players? A kidney. <laughs> and this was the ultimate way to recruit a player. True, true. Yeah, right? Because this was like, this all happened in the recruiting mission. Yeah. And this coach was just playing the long game. They actually did um, have the, the compliance officer at Wake Forest had the content that ended up before this. Yeah, this sounds like a compliance violation. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I wonder, like, does it have to go inside him? Could you sell the kidney on the black market? Oh, it's such a great way to recruit a player for $2 million. <laughs> yeah, they actually, on the um, in law school, 
there's an entire section of, I, th- I believe that's property, mm-hmm. I think, property first law first year that's on taboo top things. Like you're not actually allowed to sell an organ. Uh, but now that they have Bitcoin, you can probably figure out somewhere <laughs> to sell it. Um, so, okay. So th- let's pick up the story. Um, Jordan was actually able to come back and play at Wake Forest. Um, in his very first game, first three at-bats, his timing was just totally off. He struck out three times in a row. And then um, on his fourth at-bat, there were two strikes. Um, and Coach Tom Walter called timeout, went and talked to him, and just said, look, you have a long career. You don't need to press. Um, don't think about the kidney. Just go out there and play. Very next pitch, he got his first hit um, and ended up having a great career. And the coolest way that this story ends is um, back in 2020, uh, Jordan and Walter started this program called Get in the Game. Um, And this was all because one of Tom Walter's friends, so Mm -hmm. one of the coach's friends, said, oh, I didn't realize you could share a kidney with Kevin Jordan because, you know, Tom Walter's white and Kevin Jordan's black. And and after he heard his friend say that, he's like, oh, man, you know, so much of the – like the shit that happens in the world is from a total misunderstanding of how much unites us. And so again, the game is all about like what they go into do, they go into schools and they say, look, we share the same blood and um, try to bring people, you know, across um, different, you know, races together via that message. But it's also a great memory or a great thing to think about one about coaching and teamwork and things like that and what it means, but also, you know, what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. Um, so as we talk about the world championships, we're going to be talking about some of the best athletes in the world, some people we coach, they're all going through and feeling the same things that everyone else feels in athletics. And I think that part that unites us. Um, and, you know, we can lean into that part as much as possible. And we hope that's what you feel in the stories we tell you on this podcast. And I think sometimes there's a human tendency, or at least, you know, I've seen this among athletes, and sometimes it's a defense mechanism to say, hey, it's just sports. Yeah. What we're doing is just sports. But like when you see these stories of getting the game and, you know, all these stories that happens through the lens and through the vehicle of sports, it's like, yeah. no, so much more happens in sports. It's not just the act of doing it, which is yeah. really cool. It's all of these stories that come from it. And I think the world championships are like that because yeah. it's running, but it's also like one of the first times for some of these athletes that running is a team sport Definitely. and it's about so much more. Yeah, yeah. It's the ultimate human experience. And that's what's so cool about it. So let's talk about the world freaking championships right now. Uh, so a few things just to tee up the conversation before we get into some specific races. The first is there was quite a time zone difference. So it was eight hours difference from the mountain time zone because it was in Austria, which meant we had a lot of early wakeups last week, one to track the races, but even before that to do like pre-race calls with our athletes that were competing. Um, and yeah, it was, quite a week in that regard because like I'm always active at 5.30 a.m., but now I had to be extra active because races were happening. Well, it was so much fun for us because yeah. like we were having these pre-race calls from like 5 to 7 a.m. and then going out and doing our own workouts. And it was one of my best training weeks last That's week. True, I had yeah. so much motivation and energy <laughs> from like giving this fire or trying to give this fire to athletes yeah. and being out there and like going to do my own, own lactate threshold workouts. It made it so much fun. Also makes it feel so much easier after seeing these people do superhuman feeds. Oh, it's true. Actually, I did some of my workouts watching the races. Oh my gosh, yeah. And I was like, oh man, I'm only at four millimoles of lactate right now. <laughs> Drew Holman's probably at 26. Yeah. <laughs> Zach Miller looks like he's dying on the side of the trail while spilling sparkling water, like just Coca-Cola all <laughs> down himself. Um, actually, um, Riley Brady, who is getting ready to compete at Western States and is an absolute superstar, watch out for Riley, follow Riley, um, was down on our treadmill watching the world championships and blessing our treadmill. And I feel like it was the best vibes because they were watching our athletes at the world championships while also crushing a 90 minute uphill treadmill. It was just perfect. It was like grade A 
good vibes. There's so much inspiration swirling around yeah. in this house house right now. It's kind of wild. It's so cool. And then it was a, such a fun setup. And it's something that if you didn't see it live, you should go back and look at some of the YouTube um, coverage of this. So the TV coverage was so good. They had cameras all over the course. Um, the announcer brought the enthusiasm that I want to see in announcers. Like, yes, they they knew what they were talking about, but also they were as hyped about it as we were, which was amazing. But then the most uh, you know, memorable thing was the camera people at this race. They were so fit. I, my yeah. goal for swap actually, you know, we always think about how you recruit athletes and kind of like the future yeah. of our team and things like that. I'm going to recruit all the camera people. <laughs> they are so fit and so good. Yeah. There was even a moment, I mean, they're following athletes and Grayson ran a 440 mile downhill and yeah. the camera person is staying with her on technical training. Yeah. like, how is this happening right now? Yeah. I, I feel like we should slide into their DMS. If you're a camera person at worlds, reach out to us and we'll try to convince you to join swap <laughs> there was even a moment where a camera person passed the the third place woman to yeah. catch the second place woman and i was like what is happening yeah. right now they are throwing down they're making moves and they're all doing it while holding one camera with their arm i mean honestly it's like the peak of influencer culture because you know how like we have the selfie sticks and stuff mm -hmm. they looked like they were carrying selfie sticks while running at 20 kilometers an hour it was the weirdest wildest thing on technical terrain yeah. i was actually i was waiting for i mean they're doing it live too i was just waiting for the moment where this would happen to me like six different times yeah where it's just like boom, blah, 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 <laughs> and you hear f-bombs and the camera's all rolling all over the place and it didn't happen yeah i guess we didn't watch all the coverage maybe a cameraman did eat shit at some point but we didn't see it yeah they should I, show it if they did whatever their technical running like um knowledge is that they also need to share that because how were they not falling when they were also filming? Well, it's because they're monster truck marionettes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We used that cue the other week about running on technical trails. The fact that it's helpful to be a marionette in terms of lifting your legs yeah. and a monster truck to just cruise through everything on straight lines and the camera people were in body. I love it. that. Yeah. All SWAT podcast listeners, I'm sure. And then finally, the courses were insane. Like bonkers insane. Just bonkers. I mean, especially the long course, um, which was 50 miles with over 20,000 feet of climbing. This is a more severe um, vert ratio than hard rock by a substantial margin. Essentially, these are the steepest races we've ever seen at this level of performance. And as a result, it was testing very unique things. And as we talk about some of these athlete stories, we'll also talk a little bit about training, how we thought about it as coaches, and um, how you might be able to think about similar, similar stresses and a mix of stresses. Because yes, the long course was insane and the short course, which was a marathon, kind of funny to call you know, 20, uh, you got 48K, so like longer than a marathon, a short course. Especially too, because it was taking, with Oliver, took athletes quite a lot of time yeah. to cover this course. The Strava file was starting to give me a little bit of like peripheral doms. Oh, I felt yeah. like I was getting doms just by looking at it because yeah. there were miles in there with like many, many miles that had 1,400 feet of descent. Yeah. yeah. I, 14, it's so wild to think about what they did out there um, because we have one climb in here in Boulder that's like 1,500 feet in a mile and it is so wildly steep. Um, in the uphills, yeah, I can get that to a certain extent. The downhills over 50 miles, uh, it just blows my mind. It's one of those things as a coach that, yes, you want to think about, but not think about too much because at a certain point, you just are like overwhelmed. And in other words, I always need to drive myself back to the first principles of running performance, which is what we did while we were coaching this. Um, okay. So let's go through some world championship stories. Do you want to start with Grayson? Of course we're starting with Grayson. Start, of course we're starting with I Grayson. I am so impressed with Grayson. So yeah. we started with the fact that she was standing on that start line and had the best game face yeah. of all time. I'm like, she is going to eat people out there yeah. in, the, in the best of ways. Like she looked strong. She looked fierce. She looked ready to go. And I've just been, I mean, listen to Grayson. We did an interview with Grayson on our podcast a couple weeks ago and she had a mentality that I love. And yeah. she's worked really hard to develop that mentality. Like, I don't think it's something that has always come naturally to it's her. It's come from adversity. Yeah. yeah. And seeing her stand on that start line was the full embodiment of 
the journey of working on our mentality. Yeah, if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen to our Grayson interview, which was just a few weeks ago at this point. Um, but it was fascinating because the night before the race, um, I got to talk to Grayson. And um, I also got to talk to her before the vertical kilometer where mm-hmm. she was third. She she won the bronze medal, but that wasn't really her skill set. And after I talked to her on the phone, um, I, re- I texted Abby Levine, um, who's this incredible athlete, world-class athlete, but also an incredible journalist and follows the world championships closely. And I was just like, Grayson's going to win this and she's not going to win by a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was because talking to her, she had this exact race strategy planned out and it played exactly as Grayson and I predicted, which was very cool. So quick play-by-play of the race itself, because I think it was one of the best races you've ever seen. Please go back and watch this race. It's only an hour long um, and you'll you'll get a little bit of it from the podcast, but seeing it live with every step on video was truly a sight to behold. I mean, it was one of the cooler running races, cooler, one of the cooler sports events I've ever seen. I agree. And the dynamics of it reminded me a lot of cycling. Yeah, And then definitely. I think there was some tactical elements of it. So as we get through the play-by-play, I think we'll go through some of the tactical stuff. And I think if, I mean, I think a lot of racing is tactical. So yeah. I think listen up to some of this because I learned a lot about being a trail running tactician out there yeah. because I think so much of these mountain races are tactical in addition to raw ability. And how it interacts with your physiology. Exactly. Because that's yeah. the cool thing about mm-hmm. Grayson. Grayson's brilliant physiologically. Like she understands all this stuff, you know, as much as a person can. Like she is a brilliant coach in addition to it being a great athlete in terms of how she thinks about herself. And she played, she used that to her advantage in the race. Mm-hmm. So what happened is the race started really fast on roads. Um, almost all these athletes were wearing road shoes, which gives you an idea of the course had like 2,300 feet of climbing in nine miles, but it wasn't insanely technical like some of the other courses were. Um, and so Grayson got to the top of the first climb, which is the is up, down, up, down. She got to the top of the first climb leading by about eight to 10 seconds, which is a pretty big margin against mm-hmm. the best athletes in yep. the world, you know, especially when you have full teams from Africa, full teams from Europe, full teams from every, you know, major country that does long distance running in the world. Um, but on the first descent, she was caught by Tove Alexanderson. Um, and Grayson didn't really know that much about Tove coming in um, because she's famous in orienteering. She's, she's a 17-time yeah. world champion in orienteering. Yeah, it was remarkable to see her run downhill. I mean, she probably, if Grayson, Grayson at one point ran a 447 downhill mile um, on a course that was trails, Tove probably ran a 430 at some point in that with, first lap. With tons of switchbacks. Yeah. And I mean, it, it was not like they were just bombing straight down a hill. There was tons of swerves and, and switchbacks. And honestly, the course wasn't marked all that well too. So yeah. there was some uncertainty. Tove had the home field advantage in terms of knowing the course, but yeah. there were times where Grayson, I was like, oh, Grayson, that turn looks difficult. I was so so much anxiety. I had so many bathroom breaks while watching these races <laughs> from the nerves. Um, okay, so not only did Tove pass, Tove put 12 seconds on Grayson and then maintained it on the mile through Innsbruck itself, Innsbruck, Austria, um, to the point that, like, you know, people were watching. And then you look on that live chat, you can watch it when you, you know, go back and look at this. And they're like, oh, this, she's putting it to Grayson. Like, this is the moment. Like, Tove has this. Actually, they were saying things like Grayson got schooled. And I was yeah, like, yeah. just wait, friends. Just yeah. wait. And it gets back to the physiology. Yeah. Like, that type of downhill. What Grace and I talked about is on the first descent, you need to save your quads mm-hmm. because you have to have those quads for the second climb. Um, and it's a good reminder to everyone doing these types of races with downhills and ups. It, even things like the Boston Marathon or Grandma's or CIM or whatever, um, you need to save your quads on early downhills because you need those quads later. Um, and that's all Grayson did. Grayson told me that, okay, I saw her pass. I saw what she was doing. And I knew that if I just let her go, it would give her more confidence in what she was doing and make her dig a deeper hole. So Grayson did that fully intentionally in the heat of the moment. And you can even see that in her heart rate file. So on the first climb, Grayson's heart rate got to 190, which is just over her lactate threshold, right around her critical speed. She has a very high 
top point heart rate zone. But then on the descent, she got into the 160s, which for Grayson is actually pretty easy. So I think people are like, oh, Toby's just a better descender. What they didn't realize is the whole time Grayson was just relaxing, planning for that second loop, ready to unleash. And I think this is where, for me, the tactical like genius comes in in terms yeah. of like thinking about this. So Tove is arguably one of the best downhill descenders in the entire world. Definitely, I yeah. think she's probably the best like technical trail running descender in the entire world. And Grayson, of course, didn't know who she was, yeah. which, which is very funny. I mean, Tove is so legit. And, but it hasn't done many trail races. Yeah, exactly. Know? So I mean, it makes sense that Grayson didn't know who she was because she hasn't raced a ton in the trail arena. But I think actually, if I were Tove, I might not have made that like extreme pass on Grayson because yeah. it's almost like you're showing your cards to her on that yeah. first descent. Whereas I think, you know, if she had just stayed behind Grayson, I think Grayson may not have realized how strong of a downhill runner she was and then realized that she had to put so much time into her on the uphill. Exactly. And that's exactly what happened because once Tove showed her cards, Grayson um, very quickly made up the ground on the second climb and then paused right behind Tove and made an emphatic pass. And we were watching this yeah. live and it was so fun to cheer her on. But I mean, when she made a pass, she, and it, this this is a tactical thing. When you make a pass, make a pass and do it decisively. Yeah. yeah. And that's what Christian said. She said on tr in track, they say you either make a pass or you don't. Yep. And so she paused, waited, and then put like 10 seconds on Tove within a couple hundred meters. Um, and what Grayson realized is she had to push on the climb. Um, and because she had conserved her quads, was able to make about 48 seconds or something. And then coolly, my, the cool, most cool thing to me is then Grayson put more time in on the d downhill mm -hmm. and ended up winning by almost a minute. And I think what it points out is, you know, one, I think there might be people out there that think that first loop shows that Tove was better at that than Grayson. And the answer is no, Grayson was... Grayson's the best at everything. She was being smart. She's she, being tactical. Yeah. I mean, she had, if, if that was a one loop race, she, I mean, I don't want to speculate about two different athletes, definitely, but definitely. Grayson would have won. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Exactly. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, people like are on our pre-race call the day before the race. And this is a little bit, you can go back and listen to our Patreon podcast actually, where we talk about Grayson's strategy that we had, we were planning, um, which is kind of an interesting, because this was before the race. And it was exactly how it played out. Yeah. And yeah. what, what we talked about was what I challenged her to do is the very first mile on the last descent. So like, as you're going downhill, you don't need quads after that. So, um, I told her, I want to see your mile PR on Strava, um, on that first mile of the mm -hmm. second descent. And sure enough, Grayson was able, when she opened it up to put in that ground. So I think this really points out the importance of understanding your own physiology as it relates to the race. Like, Tove probably did the best structure race for herself because she still got silver in the whole world amongst- Oh, so impressive. The, yeah. yeah, and if, if it weren't for Grayson being there, we'd be looking at that result as one of the best performances ever. It just so happened that Grayson might've had the very best performance in female mountain running history. We're talking about two legends who are having a tactical battle with each other. Yeah. So I think upon reflection, that's really important. It's like, as we're uplifting Grayson in the chat and we're like, she's going to take Tove yeah, to yeah. lunch. I love this type of energy and this type of chatting, especially about women's sports. Like, yeah. I think so often we have this competitive banter and chat about men's sports, yeah. but it's not as common in women's sports. So when I see people commenting like, <laughs> Grayson's going to take her to lunch, I live and live that up. But we're talking about two legends. Well, that being said, uh, there is a podcast listener that is from Sweden mm -hmm. um, and they messaged me uh, on Instagram and I actually gave you, I showed Megan my back and forth. Megan saw confrontational David on Instagram because the, in the Instagram messages, the person was like, you know, if Tove had trained specifically or whatever. Um, and I, I like went off as much as I can go off. And it was a podcast listener. So we were doing it in a very loving way and they're amazing and I respect them. But at the same time, I was defending the honor of the goat, Grayson Murphy. Do you know what my hot take is? What? I love confrontational David so much. <laughs> I would bang confrontational Yay! David so hard. It's so sexy. My testosterone just going up. Yeah, it's well, I mean, it's fun because 
you don't unleash confrontational David very often. Yeah. So when it does happen, it's like, I'm that hype girl. I'm like, bring it, bring it, bring it. <laughs> Coach Tom Walter gives a kidney. I give a few stern Instagram messages <laughs> at the very least. Uh, and, and a training lesson from this um, is that climbing ability is mostly your speed. Um, mm-hmm. Don't forget that. Once you get up to like 25% grades, yes, it starts to fall apart just a little bit for some athletes. But for the most part, if you get faster, you'll become a better climber. Don't get caught up too much in climbing. Grayson, before this race, we're going to talk a little bit about her training, but she just, you know, mostly did track fast work um, and didn't do much um, steep climbing on trails. In fact, I don't think she only did one trail workout between the U.S. champs and the world champs. And it's going to get into some of the principles that we talk about in terms of the climbing paradox. The fact that if you do a lot of steep climbing consistently at the cost of training speed, I think it makes you a a long-term worse runner. And Grayson embodies this. She did a track workout almost just a week before the the race. And my thinking there was just get yourself, get your legs moving after you get to Europe, you know, Mm -hmm. because that's what it's going to take to win this race. And sure enough, that's what it did take. Um, Okay, so next up is talking about Drew Holman, the one and only podcast legend, Drew Holman. Our boy, Drew. <laughs> and he lived it up out there. So he was having a battle with Perrier-covered Zach Miller yeah. out there for fifth and sixth place. They were coming in, and they've been on this bonkers course. This is the long course, the 50-plus mile 20,000 feet of climbing race. And, you know, a lot of people would say about Drew coming into this race, oh, he's a fast guy. Who knows how he's going to do in this true mountain race? And he's a he's a mountain wizard in you addition to being understand. a fast guy. But this is what he, he had to be both. Yeah. So they they wrapped up the race. So uh, Drew and Zach are coming in about a mile, 800 meters to go. They start laying it down, <laughs> racing each other and running so fast. Can you imagine running? I mean, this probably feels like an all out 800 at this point imagine. at the end of this bonkers race. They're yeah. running five minute, 30 second per mile pace at the end on roads to finish up um, a race that had more quad damage than you've ever seen. And the videos of it are shocking. Please go back. It's all over social media, but you actually made a gif. Yeah. Of, of Drew. So Drew rounded, there was a, before the finish line, there was a curve and he rounded it and he was running. It almost looked like it was like a, a roadrunner gif because yeah. he, he had his head down. And he was just <laughs> doing strides so fast. That's why we do our strides. It was so cool. So Drew finished fifth in the world. Um, first North American, first American, um, which is one of the coolest friend coaching moments my entire life. I love Drew with all my heart. But then Zach was sixth, incredible performance. And then Eric Lapuma was seventh um, in a five, six, seven team USA domination. And I loved that because it was a team moment. Like Eric at one point passed Drew when Drew went through a dark patch. And Eric's like, you got this. Stay on my wheel. And the only thing that kept Drew going at that top, top level was knowing that he was doing it for the team. And um, then to, for them all to finish together, it, yes, five, six, seven, but in all intents and purposes, it was just team. And that was one of the cooler running moments I've ever seen. And he was doing it for the Strava, too. Yeah. Actually, Drew very rarely uploads to Strava. So he probably was not doing it at all for the Strava, but one of my favorite coaching moments. So yeah. I was downstairs in the elliptical when this was happening. You came down with baby Leo, and we were just going bananas <laughs> at the TV watching Drew finish. And he finishes, he falls on his back. Yeah. And then one second later, he stops his watch. And you're yeah. yelling at him. You're like, stop your watch, Drew. Stop your watch. <laughs> I live for those Strava files. <laughs> yeah, when Grayson uploaded her Strava file, like it's, I have notifications set for both of them. It's one of the best moments of my life to see. Um, so a, a couple notes about this type of performance. Um, the first is Drew and I ran two weeks before this on those really steep trails in Boulder I mentioned. And what we talked about during that run is try to do granny gear climbing as much as you can. Mm-hmm. So hiking is awesome. We uplift hiking, but every single step of a climb you can run, 
will pay off in the future. So what we called it is granny gear climbing. It's kind of like on a bike when you set it to your lowest gear and then just keep moving up the mountain. So for Drew, he can granny gear climb at 20% grades consistently. Oh, probably even higher than yeah. that. Yeah, well, when he's yeah. fresh, when he's fresh, he can granny mm-hmm. gear climb 35% grades. Oh, he could granny gear climb a free solo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. El Cap, Drew's granny gear climbing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just like in the movie Free Solo, Alex Highland's doing that really wild move and then Drew's just like running on the side. Jimmy Chin's like, hey, Drew. Without without even pulse. <laughs> without even pulse. Um, so that works to a certain extent, but for Drew, he did say, you know, I need to learn to use poles better for a race like this. That being said, he's going to be doing CCC this year. I don't necessarily think he'll have to hike that much at CCC because CCC is actually way easier than this race, as shocking as that is. Which is wild. Yeah. yeah. It's- but that same principle, I think, applies to everybody. You know, like if your granny gear climbing goes at 2% grade, um, if you can learn to run just a little bit of the ups and then use hiking when you can't have to, that combination works really well. And you'd be shocked at how much ground you can put in to people um, in short periods of time um, very quickly. When I granny gear climb too, I feel like there's lots of a biomechanical stress on my legs. Yeah. Sometimes for me, I think the extended time hiking puts more biomechanical stress than just that like super chill granny gear effort. I mean, yeah. I think for me, if you compare the heart rates, they're probably pretty similar Definitely. at both efforts, but I feel more efficient granny gearing it. And I think it's less biomechanical stress. Yeah. And I think it's a reason that and races with steep climbs, you've basically been unbeatable. And I don't think it's because your granny gear running is necessarily faster than other people hiking. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what happens is on these really steep grades, they all, they do level out at times. So um, unless you're purely up walls, which some of this course was, and you know, in retrospect, maybe we should have done a lot more pole practice for Drew. But on most of the time, yes, it might be 20% at times or whatever, 30%, but then there are periods of time where it levels out to 8%. Mm-hmm. And it's almost impossible to switch from running to hiking in those quick um, iterations that you need to. to Unless you're Grayson Murphy. Unless you're Grayson Murphy. She was so good. Actually, that was one thing. She did do a little bit of hiking in the race and her transition from hiking to running was yeah, impressive. Definitely. Yeah. But like for you or something, you know, you're already running. So you're putting in four steps on someone very quickly mm-hmm. in those times. So hiking is incredibly important. We but those adaptations get optimized really rapidly. So focus on it, but don't overdo it and try in training, even if your heart rate gets up to run just a step more of the climbs whenever you can, that will add up a huge amount over time. Did you have a chance to decompress with Drew and ask him what percentage of climbs he ran in this race? No, we haven't talked yet about the race experience. I told him to take notes though. Did you really? Yeah. yeah I'm excited. And I'm talking to Alison Baca today who had a similar experience because Allison didn't use poles at all. Interesting. Yeah. The entire race. The entire race. Wow. So we'll get to that. Um, Okay. So here's a question from Patreon that is relevant here. So as always, patreon.com slash swap, S-W-A-P. There we do a bonus podcast every week that's 30 minutes. We have 55 of them. You can hear behind the scenes, race strategy, answer tons of questions. Uh, We do science corner posts. We do a bunch of interesting things. And it's a way to support the podcast. Do it if you can. Actually, that's where we're going to let out our secret picks for Broken Arrow and Western States Ahead. So we always do them on Fridays. And I feel like we're in that race brain space and we're predicting, we're we're throwing down kind of (laughs) what we've told our athletes. So there's some like inside baseball on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People did hear that. Grayson was going to win guaranteed at that race. Um, so here's a question regarding trail running because F asphalt, <laughs> I live in Norway where switchbacks practically don't exist. I was wondering your thoughts on training intervals on steep 30% terrain versus runnable terrain five to 20 ish percent. Um, you know, clarification for those that aren't of us that aren't Killian or Grayson. So essentially steep train versus runnable train for intervals. I've always traditionally trained steep because I love power hiking. I'm also a ski mountaineer in winter, so poles are my jam. But over the past year, I've unfortunately realized that speed does matter. And what you say about half marathon speed essentially being the key factor in determining results is pretty true. Um, so our thinking there, and I think we agree here, actually you take the lead because 
I think we agree, but I want to make sure. Oh, we definitely agree. Okay, okay. And I agree. I co-sign with this listener who sent in, speed matters a ton. Yeah. I mean, it does matter to have the mechanical stimulus in your legs so that you can handle steep grades. But we like doing our like our pure efforts focused on output at yeah. lower percentages in terms of incline because you get much better maximization of speed, of mechanical stress, yeah. of neuromuscular ability to turn over. So I think for me, like a lot of my treadmill workouts actually are instructive. I do those at 8%. Yeah. Very, very different than doing something at 20 or 30%. Yet I have the ability in my body to handle that because I've done that steep vert. Yeah. But I think train on, in terms of like your focused efforts on, I would say any, anywhere between five to 15%. Yeah. And maybe for more beginner athletes on the low end of that spectrum, like yeah, four three, or 5%. Three percent, yeah. yeah. And then for more advanced athletes, yes, it can be steeper. And it gets back to the climbing paradox. Um, if you take nothing else away from SWAT podcast, listen to the climbing paradox because I think it kind of underscores like how we've done this and why our athletes can have success over time. Um, and the answer is when you're going really steep grades or technical terrain, um, you end up being limited by mechanical output. So mm-hmm. your aerobic system's working really high, sky high, you know, your heart rate's as high as it can be at round threshold or whatever. Um, but your mechanical output actually starts to drop a little bit as you go those really steep grades because the muscular demand is so high. Mm-hmm. So the muscles are essentially weightlifting while you're aerob- to support your aerobic system. And all muscles start to fail eventually, and you have to dial back power output. So if you do this stuff on steep terrain, yes, you're getting the aerobic stimulus. So aerobically, you're in a great spot. But mechanically, you're going to lose the opportunity to put out higher rates of output that will help an athlete progress. So for Killian or whatever, this is less significant because he doesn't have that limiter as much as others. Because he's fast. He could probably not do any speed training and knock yeah. out like – Zach Miller and Drew type of speed. And his output doesn't fade, even at 30% grades. It's just a different thing. Um, But for most of us, it starts to fade pretty quickly as our muscles fatigue. Um, So if you train the high outputs when the goal is mechanical um, at steep grades, you're just going to be training at lower mechanical output than Mm -hmm. you should be. Um, So you can do steep trails in training. It's great to do, especially on long runs. But don't use it for your focused efforts. Um, that's not where you're going to get the big bang for your buck that, that helps you grow over time. I'm actually curious to think about too, like the when if we did like a correlational analysis, yeah. sometimes I feel like training on really steep or really technical terrain is almost more akin to cross training Definitely, than yeah. it is to running because like the movement patterns are so different. Like it's an amazing aerobic and lactate threshold and overall cardiovascular workout. But I would say that it's like not super specific to overall running. Yeah. yeah. And at the end of the day, climbing, even the steep stuff will end up being your speed with just a little bit of biomechanical mm-hmm. changes. Yep. Like what I told Grayson before the race too is, um, you know, your lactate threshold is off the charts, like her speed around one hour effort. So you can have confidence that anyone that's going with you, whether it's Tove or somebody else will start to fade at 35 minutes around that effort mm-hmm. um, because your speed at that effort is so high. Your output is so high that people to keep up with you will have to be better than you at that when you're talking about trails that are more runnable. The contrast is the VK, which was so steep. I was just about to ask this. Yeah. Would you change your philosophy for a VK? I mean, if that was the only thing you cared about, yes. sure. Yeah, because VK is basically a VO2 max test with elements of strength. Yeah. And I think running speed doesn't matter quite as much. It doesn't. I mean, it's still relevant long-term growth-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, if you're thinking three years down the line, speed still needs to be the focus. And that's where it gets a little complicated. And, you know, there can be specialists like Andrea Meyer in the um, VK that beat Grayson. Like, she's an absolute monster at that type of running. Yeah. Um, yeah. And she didn't do the classic yeah. because she recognized that wasn't necessarily her strength and skill set. Definitely. And so, you know, in other words, there are always trade offs, but the way to pr- improve long term is to work on your speed and your output. Um, and on that note, Allison Baca, we talked about her just a few weeks ago after Lake Sonoma. She finished sixth place, first American, um, and just, 
she's a super mom. Um, she had her kid a few years ago now. Just, it's such an inspiring athlete. Her story is so cool. And I think we've talked about this before, the idea that, like, I think if you popped into this story right now, you'd be yeah. like, she's a hero, but yeah. she has worked so hard for this. And Definitely. yeah, she's like, what she did was heroic out there, but it is like, there is a backbone of years and years of work and grinding postpartum. And yeah. to see her lay it out there, <laughs> and her whole family was there. Yeah. I think she knew, like, it seems like extended family. Like I feel like she knew something special was going to happen. Yeah. And that's how she raced too. Like I woke up at 1.30 AM and I had a text from Leah Yingling who was like, Allison is in the lead at this point, which just shows how she wanted to race this. Like, Did you have the nervous poops at 1.30 AM seeing that text? Oh, I couldn't fall back asleep all day. I My sleep numbers were so bad. <laughs> worse than baby Leo. Yeah, way worse. Leo is like a piece of cake compared to coaching athletes racing in Europe. Um, but what she learned at Western States last year when Allison raced is that if you go out and for her and race strategically behind people and don't really enter the mix – you just, for her, she just didn't feel like she was engaged. And at that race, she, I think it, she was 12th or 13th at Western States, mm -hmm. but she's like, I just didn't enjoy it at all because I wasn't in the mix. And so she put herself in the mix. She put her nose in it. And that is so fucking inspiring. Like that's the lesson I take from Allison. Stick your nose in it. Yeah. And be different too. I mean, she yeah. didn't use poles in a course where I would say 99% of those women had poles. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens when we talk on the phone after this podcast recording. But I guess she's going to say, I need to practice a little okay, more with good. poles. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But six in the world is incredible. It was so yeah. cool to see. Also, I love how different psychology like gets you different places. Like I have yeah. athletes that love to race from behind, whereas Allison is definitely one that loves to lead from the front. And it's like kind of knowing and understanding your psychology. Yeah. And what you get out of these types of races in general. But um, I also think these races are fascinating psychology in general, because not all of her athletes had good days. Claire Definitely. suffered a fall at mile eight and yeah. she finished, but it was like a miraculous like comeback to be able to do that. And, you know, Hannah Allgood had vomiting out there. Yeah. And, but I think what's interesting though, is I think sometimes the brain smooths over those race experiences. Yeah. Like, I think sometimes when you're in that deep pain cave, it's like, yeah, it's impossible to keep going. Like we are not about death before DNF. No way. Yeah. There are certain situations where it's like, get off that course, let your body recover. It's not worth trudging to the finish line and risking a medical emergency. But I feel like the brain has a way of smoothing that over. Definitely. In the after, like in the aftermath. Like I think two to three days post DNF is one of the hardest times because yeah. it's like the brain isn't in that memory. It's like it's smoothed everything over and it's like, oh yeah, I could have finished. Two to three days post anything. Like yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even workouts or whatever. Like Well, even people... even childbirth. Yeah, yeah. After childbirth, two to three days later, I remember being in the middle of, of like labor and being like, this is some deep, bad yeah. shit. Yeah. I would do anything right now. Like I wasn't even thinking about being excited for baby Leah. I was like, just get me out of here. Same, yeah. same <laughs> yeah. major cosign to that. It was so rough. And then two to three days later, I was like, you know, I could do this once or twice a week. Honestly, Megan, if they gave me chicken nuggets, I could do this for long enough. It was two or three minutes after. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the thing. You have a very short memory as a lot of elite athletes do, but it applies to workouts too. Like yeah. people are like, Oh, I don't really remember that. Make sure you give yourself a lot of credit that like the brain does this by design um, and not to overanalyze like what you could have done or whatever, because it's like you do everything you can. It's not a mental toughness thing. It's just what the body's capable of on the moment. And don't let the brain play tricks on you that it was easier than it was because it's always difficult. Well, I think some of the best athletes have the Ted Lasso memory of a goldfish. Yeah, yeah. Like it's very short. We move on. We process things fast and like, you know, we grow and learn from it. But also in the memory of a goldfish, it smooths over the pain. Definitely. And it's yeah. like, yeah, well, that was a legit experience. And I think sometimes these races have a way of, of doing that. You know what the most controversial thing we've ever said in the podcast was? What? That we couldn't finish Ted Lasso season three. Oh, we got a lot of messages. We got a that. lot of messages. That we're going to we're gonna work to do it. So I guess my thing is like, I understand that how people feel like, so we, we 
loved Ted Lasso season one. Season two was really good, but I not- mean, we loved it. Yeah. Like when we talk about, we, like have a, we have a belief sign in our bathroom. Yeah, yeah. We touch it every morning before we poop. Yeah, <laughs> we do. And it goes okay in there. <laughs> it was sometimes better than others. Let's be honest. We're going to talk about GI system maybe later. Um, but yeah, people were like, you need to finish. Uh, you owe it to them. And it's like, okay, we'll finish. Because people really do swear by it. But first few episodes were a little rough. People, that death before DNF man concept. Yeah, it's true. We're allowed to DNF Ted Lasso if we want. It's our we freaking still, right. And we still love it. We're no, just like- I'm actually, to... I'm going to watch it on the treadmill. Okay, that's perfect. Yeah. Um, okay, and then a couple non-swap stories. We talked about Andrea Meyer- she was 43 years old. So impressive. Winning the vertical kilometer. Yeah. Um, Which is essentially a VO2 max race. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was very inspired by that. I was like, I got 10 years yeah. left. Yeah. yeah. So if you, I mean, if you're in your forties out there, like the, when we, this is something we've seen in coaching too. The timeline on these sports is much longer than people think. Mm-hmm. Like this is the, to be best in the world. We've seen athletes a- achieve incredible things in their fifties and sixties too. If you take a long-term approach to what you can do. Yes, there are physiological barriers as hormones change and things like that, but the body reaches set points that can be astronomically high if you keep investing in yourself. In fact, there was a study that came out recently that was looking at um, athletes in their 60s, -hmm. and it found that the um, most of the regression, over 50% of the regression, was just determined by reductions in training volume Mm -hmm. rather than reductions in VO2 max. So yes, VO2 max does go down, but the problem is athletes usually then adapt their training, so they're just not doing as much. And that's where things like cross-training and it's still investing in yourself as if you're a 25 year old professional, like that is a meaningful life and you can keep doing it even when, you know, you face like that slippery slope of time. What I'm also really curious about too, though, is athletes that are in their forties, fifties and sixties and their overall running odometer is low. Yeah. So they haven't necessarily done the trials of miles. And I feel like a trial of miles sometimes at 40, 50 or 60 goes, it has even more bang for the yeah. buck because it's like, it's revving that car, your engine's odometer in a way that's really productive and fruitful. But you know what I do? What? Just reset the odometer. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I've done. Like, you know that thing that you just push and it like resets the trip number back to zero? Do you do that all the time? I do it all the time. See, this is our opposite personalities. Yeah. Mine just says like 43,000 miles or something. Yeah. <laughs> no, I reset that one all the time because I like to start at zero. And that's what I do athletically all the time because I, I'm trying to do a self-experiment here. I think that a lot of aging regression is because people think they should regress with age. Um, and I'm trying to, I'm going to do a one person experiment. You can keep me accountable to this on the podcast that when I'm 47 years old, I still want to be competing at a national level. Um, like that's my challenge to myself. Like I'm trying to see what's possible. Um, if you try to take off any preconceived notions about regression, I love this. And this if is, nothing else, we haven't talked challenge. about this before. This is new. Yeah. Well, if nothing else, it's just like a fun way to challenge myself. Yeah. But like, that's what I want to demonstrate as a coach too. It's like, I feel like my athletics now is a chance to demonstrate that like this long-term investment in yourself Mm -hmm. can be a lifestyle that like even that like I practice what I preach. Well, I was going to say, I think 90% of this battle is mental. And I mean, it's about showing up because a lot of people stop showing up when they hit that aging curve. And I think, you know, your ability to keep showing up and keep finding out, I'm excited for it. That'd be so fun. And you know who I'm inspired by? Joe Gray. Oh, Joe Gray. How old is Joe Gray? Uh, he's like, in his late 30s, right? Yeah, um, it's, he's really impressive. And he was fifth in the world in the VK. Um, we had interviewed Joe on the podcast. Go back and listen to that. We love Joe. And at this point, I mean, this guy was kicking my ass decade over a decade ago. And he's still at the top international level. I mean, the, the top performances in the VK, the top four, were some of the most insane performances we've ever seen. I believe Joe was top, well, definitely top North American. Um, absolutely so far ahead of everybody else. Like, he keeps resetting what's possible. 
I think there's almost this like uniting mental characteristic amongst like the Joe Grays and the yeah. Grayson Murphys where they stand on the starting line and they want to race the best in the world. Yeah. And I think not every athlete has that. Like I think a lot of athletes would like the starting line to be clear of competitors Definitely. or like they would like to have an easy victory. And what I see in Joe and what I see in Grayson is they want that. Yeah. They want to be on the starting line and being like, who can I take out to lunch? Yeah. You know, and I, th- I think that's so cool. And the more that as like athletes, we can have that mentality. It makes sport more fun. Yeah. And when Grace and I talked at the start of the year, it was like, the goal this year is to lose. Yeah. And, and after, she, I mean, she did. Yeah. After the the yeah she after, got third. I mean, she got yeah, yeah. That, that podium. She, I can't call that. She got thing. a medal. <laughs> Her podium was incredible. But she did say, like, but she didn't win. And yeah. she said, I, I lose. I lost. And it was great. Yeah. You know? And I, I think. Do you think that gave her a sense of freedom? I mean, I think she might have already reached the freedom. Like, if, yeah. you, listen, if you guys listen to the podcast, you'll hear her talking about that. Um, but I think it is kind of liberating to know that in her off discipline, she can put herself out there in a place that's like she knows she's going to hurt and face that with full, like a fully open heart. Well, you know? we haven't really talked about it, but there is a burden of talent. Like, Definitely. when you have Grayson's level of talent, to me, well, it's incredible and she's done great things with it, but it's also a burden too. And yeah. I feel for her on that. Like, when she steps on the start line, she has a like target on her back. Everyone is looking at her and she handled that with such grace and beauty. It was, it was incredible. And so, so inspired by all the athletes at worlds, um, all the teams, like Jennifer Lichter was fourth in the short trail. That was so impressive. So cool. MK Sullivan was top 10 in short trail, which was amazing. The men should have won a gold medal, the U S men. So they were, they were five, six, seven. And Oh yeah. We just talked about that five, six, seven, and they didn't win gold. I was, well, we thought they won gold and we were like, they won gold. And Instagram people were dunking on us. They're like, they didn't win gold. You guys guess this guys. They do um, – I don't know why I'm saying get this, guys. I sound like I'm a YouTube star. <laughs> what the fuck am I doing? Um, but get this, humans, f- friends, fellow folks um, <laughs> with F-O-L-X. Um, they do it based on time, not place. It's like that's actually just cobbling together individual results. It seems really dumb. Yeah, it makes no sense to me. Well, I think the the fun part of this race is the tactical structure. Yeah. And I think and sometimes when you remove – like, yes, you're going to have people sprinting their hearts out well, yeah. for time. But it's like the tactical nature, I think, is more fun. Yeah. And Team USA, who is able to work together for five, six, seven, I feel like that should be rewarded compared to just – Definitely. Yeah. And anytime time. you reward time in sports above other things, you're also incentivizing negative behavior. Like that's just not – as we're going to talk about when we talk about – um, track racing, which God, we might get to <laughs> We're pretty far along. Um, okay. Do you want to go to hot takes? I'm so excited for hot Woo-hoo! takes. Let's, Let's do it. Let's do this. Okay. As always, these are sent in from listeners on Patreon. Um, they're fun little things. We'll riff on them a little bit. First one, music can be a great training tool. Get a playlist with a fast beat and you can become the pranciest pony. Starting to run with music helped me raise my cadence from 170 to 178. Plus, sometimes it's just more fun. Oh, heck yes. Yeah. I totally agree. I can't remember the last run I haven't done with music. Oh, yeah. It's hard for me. Racing, I don't do. Yeah. I don't use music in races. Throw some Ja Rule and Ashanti on there, oh and God. you're feeling good. Please, guys, do a... Guys, what the fuck <laughs> am I doing? Do, but do a Ja Rule playlist. Um, and actually, you know, I think there's a lot of purists out there that say you shouldn't run with music. I don't get it. Do but I think want. they've never run with music before. Yeah. I yeah. agree. A lot of watches now. So I have a Garmin 745. It ha- You can upload the music to the watch. So it's essentially like having an iPod shuffle on your watch. Um, and you just get some Aftershocks earbuds so you can still hear things around you. It's life-changing. And I think especially if you're trying to do the trial of miles, if you spend that much time in your thoughts each week, you better have some inner peace or you're going to be fucked. It's like, yes, I love listening to my thoughts too. But after a while, I don't want to listen to anything but jaw rule. Oh, I agree. My thoughts get real scary in there sometimes. Yes. It's really nice to have jaw rule to inter- interrupt that stuff going on. I actually sometimes find myself singing on the trail. Yeah. Yeah. I And, you know, sometimes people see that and I, I just embrace it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I do see you sometimes. Like, you'll do like 
uh, air drums with your hands or something. Just like, do-do-do-do-do. Oh, the air guitar? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm such a good air guitarist in my head. It <laughs> looks real weird, though. <laughs> You're so good. Okay, number two. I used to be really afraid of running over a squirrel on my road bike and was constantly doing weird, awkward braking and swerving whenever one of those animals started darting across the road. Then one day, I ran over one, and it was incredibly liberating. <laughs> a little gross, yeah, but I now don't worry anymore. I actually speed up and aim for them. This is such a good person. So we have prairie dogs here in yeah. Boulder and they kind of stand up and they taunt you as you bike by. But I get scared for myself. <laughs> I don't get scared for those prairie dogs because I saw a news article once that someone ran over a prairie dog and went over the handlebars oh, no. and unfortunately passed away oh, God. from a result. So now every time I see one of those prairie dogs, I don't think about them. I think about me. Yeah. I'm like, you're a danger to me. Not to, I'm not a danger to you. Yeah. Actually, this is why I love hot takes though. This is a pretty deep, dark thought. I actually speed up and aim for them. Oh yeah. I'm talking about squirrels, mm-hmm. but I respect it. I think if you can, you know, wear that type of thing on your sleeve, good for you. I just worry that there's going to be, you know, the squirrels talk. I, actually, have you heard about the orcas? No. Okay, so somewhere in the Mediterranean, there's um, an orca. I'm not sure if this is like 100% true. The the start of it is that a female orca was harmed by a ship rudder. Oh, like that's a, sad. A yacht rudder. Yeah. But okay, I'm not sure if that part's true. But the next part is true. That since then, orcas have been sinking yachts by attacking the rudders. Whoa. So many yachts getting sunk. Wait, that's so cool. Isn't that really cool? That's incredible. But now I'm worried that the squirrel is going to go after the cyclist. Oh, yeah, right. How are they going to do that? <laughs> um... It'd probably just go for the spokes. <laughs> I guess it's kind of like, you know, World War II attacking like the USS Indianapolis by just like dive bombing. <laughs> so maybe the squirrels won't do that. Okay, number three, you don't get out of running what you put into it. I'd really like people to stop saying there's a linear pattern between effort and results. That's not true for everyone. Oh, damn. I yeah. actually kind of agree. Powerful. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes it's a it's a up and down like mountain that yeah. does eventually look linear over time. Like I think most athletes that we work with do have some sort of linear pattern, but I would say most and not all for sure. Yeah. Well, you're the expert statistician epidemiologist over here. Um, and I imagine that if we did chart it out, it would look like, yes, maybe there's a best fit linear line that we could use most of the time. Um, but in, in practice, especially zoomed in, it just looks like a random number generator. And, you know, I think often we smooth things over. So it does look in our own brains. Mm -hmm. So it, it makes more sense. Kind of like what you said about the brain after two or three days after a race, like it makes everything fit into a narrative. But in reality, dude, this is a grind. And if you're out here training really hard, that's the process part that matters. Like, um, the reason that we try to de-emphasize caring about results and all is because at the end of the day, you don't really have control over that. And that includes people like Drew and Grayson and Allison, you know, they were given gifts that they're applying in a very amazing way, but that wouldn't happen for, you know, what? 99.99999% of people on the planet. Well, I think our brains are kind of like the opposite of researchers. So yeah. researchers, you try to find like that best fit line. You're convinced you're like, I see a line there. Yeah. And I think sometimes as athletes, we try to undercut ourselves. We're like, Definitely. oh, that's not a line. Like, what, what are you talking about? And I think the more that you can believe in the power of a really like, yeah, I would say a really generously fit line, yeah. the, the better we can be as athletes. And just, yeah, like, I, I love that idea. You're essentially, you're a poor statistician. Exactly. Be a poor statistician. Yeah, yes. On yourself. Exactly. Yeah. You're like me. Really, statistics just were never my jam, totally. So I'm just like, dude, I got those significant p-values, motherfuckers. I'm coming to age 47 and beyond, and I'm going to rock it. Watch it, because my R-squared is going to be 0.99. <laughs> you know, statistics were never really my jam either. I like many <laughs> other forms of math. I have no idea why I did a PhD. Megan, Megan, Essentially, I feel that it's almost statistics. We should wait, because you're not going to graduate officially until Saturday. Yes, I um, get to walk on Saturday at But what if someone listens to this? <laughs> Oh, at this point, I'm. I think I'm fully sealed. Okay, okay. Yeah, 
I get paranoid about this. I'm like, what if I didn't check a box? Yeah. But I think my actually my like student profile says graduated. <laughs> so perfect. Okay, uh, number four. Listening to the SWAT podcast at 0.9 speed is a great way to sneakily increase running volume. That's 10% on at least two runs a week. This is a Patreon listener, so they get the bonus podcast. Um, I like this a lot, though I'm officially team 1.5 speed. I'm at team 1.8 speed. On our podcast? Well, sound like Jarwell and Ashanti. That's true. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah you're going pretty fast. I feel like if you listen to us at 1.8 speed, your cadence is going to be 200. <laughs> <laughs> so as always, if you like this podcast, trust us, Athletic Greens is where it's at. And if we give something to you, buying Athletic Greens is another thing we can give to you, but also you're giving back to us because they've been so supportive of the podcast. How does that relate to 1.8 speed? I'm just trying to get a fucking... Uh, you know, transition in here, Megan. <laughs> Man, I'm if out you here... listen to it on 1.8 speed, transitions don't matter. When have you ever sold anything? I'm out here selling. That's true. You are hustling. I'm hustling. You are confrontational and you're selling. Yeah. I've never wanted to bang you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Those two come together. So the actual link now is drinkag1.com. Is it really the link? Swap. Yes, they changed their name. They're no longer Athletic Greens. They're now AG1. They've gone full Silicon Valley on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of like it. AG1 sounds sleek, sounds good. It does sound sleek. But as always, it's... But it also stands for Athletic You Greens. can still use the past link. They both link to the same thing, but I'm trying to do what they tell me to because I'm trying to be a good little sales boy. <laughs> <laughs> so drinkag1, all one word, dot com slash swap, S-W-A-P. This is the supplement that absolutely rocks. I got drug tested at the Canyons 100K, came back clean as a whistle, um, you know, negative test. And the reason is... And I, I wasn't stressed this time. It's because I can trust Athletic Greens. Gets me all of these great supplements. Totally clean. Totally beneficial. Um, feels great on the on the run every day. It's got that ashwagandha in it, yes. which is the only like safe safer sport certified ashwagandha. And we've seen good good things with ashwagandha. Yeah, it's so good. Okay, five. Out and backs are good races because you get to see all of the runners and say, good job, just like you're going down the line after a Little League game. And you get to find out what some of the people look like from the front. I like this one. Up and outbacks are my favorite types of races. I love outbacks. It's actually yeah. sometimes a little challenging on technical trails when you're saying, trying to say huzzah and yeah. booty people and not fuck your ankle. That's one of my favorite race ever is actually quad dipsy mm -hmm. because you get to pass people three different times. And th this listener said, and you get to find out what people look like at the front. I love getting to see what people look like throughout the race. Um, because that experience brings, I think, everyone together so much. Um, and it's just so magical to see other people working just as hard, um, but with different experiences within the context of the race. And I can't wait. You know, I'm joking about competing until I'm like whatever age, but I can't wait till I'm 70 or whatever. And being one of those people at the very, very back and still fighting just as hard. Oh, we're going to have so much fun doing that together. Oh, when we're God, 70, yeah. we should just race together. Yeah. Wouldn't that be fun? It would be interesting. And Leo's going to be crushing her souls at the front. No, you're going to race me like Drew Holman race Zach Miller. <laughs> that, oh, that'll be fun. You're going to be closing so fast. Even more fun. But this actually reminds me, so in travel soccer, when we used to do like the high fives at the end of the yeah. game, we would hand off patches oh. and the patches would represent the teams and you collected them over time. So I had this big ring of patches that I would yeah. like attach to my soccer bag, but we should have a, a somewhere I'll play podcast patch that like we just it. distribute to people as we, as we pass them. That'd be so fun. You know what your honest patch would say? What? That you're handing out to people. Bitch, bitch, bitch. <laughs> because yesterday on your bike, you got back and you're like, David, I'm not a great person. Because you're on your gravel bike and there was a triathlete that was on their fancy aero bike and you just like blew by them and you're like, I got so much joy out of that moment. Well, I I did pass them kind of fast. Yeah. And then I kind of forgot about them. And then three miles later, they passed me and I was like, uh oh. <laughs> and I passed them again. I am so bad when I get yeah. on two wheels. I, I'm like, I have an addiction on yeah. two wheels. And 
I don't like. I feel like I'm a relatively good person until two wheels. That's why you can't help it. No, but that's why you're a world world class athlete. You know, I'm sure all these athletes have that little thing within them that they they temper to be a good person in real life. But there's also a patch in their head that says, "There you go, bitch." It brings me so much joy <laughs> handing out those bitch cards. It's so fun. Okay, number six. Races are one on the downhills. And following up, some people are genetically better at downhills. I would actually agree with this. Yeah. I think there's um, – so actually with uphills specifically, I think there are some types of leg structure that makes people better at Definitely. uphills or downhills. Like Andrea that we talked about. Yeah, she's an uphill specialist. Um, so yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. the interesting thing is I think this take is, is right when it comes to downhills in particular because there was that study from UTMB mm-hmm. that found that the athletes that – were excelling on downhills in the second half were the athletes that excelled in the race. And it makes sense intuitively because um, the the pace differences on downhills will be much greater than the pace differences on ups. Like on ups, the difference between a granny gear and a hike is very, it's relatively close um, in the big scheme of things. Whereas on downhills, you can start to get multiple minutes per mile difference. And it's what determines your ability to run uphill later, how mm-hmm. much you're slammed from um, downhills. The one place I'll disagree is that, yes, there are genetic differences in everything, but I think downhill in particular is almost always practicable. Oh, it's very trainable. Yeah. To the point that those athletes can get great and never let yourself think that your genetics are what's holding you back on downs. Yes, there might be genetic limitations on ups more than downs because of the relation of VO2 max, and we know that's a heavily genetic variable. But at downhills... You got to believe because that belief is what distributes through the rest of your performance cycles. So belief has to come first. Belief comes before base pairs. I totally agree. I would say that that the race is being won on downhills. I think Grace and and Tove's race this weekend is an example where that actually didn't happen. Tove, probably the world's best downhill runner and Grace and got her on the uphill. So I think like speed still matters and speed. I mean, downhill is also part of speed. So speed and fitness in the uphill matter as well. So I think I just think it depends on the race. I just got to stop. Pause for a moment and point out this phrase I just said to end that little thing. Did you hear that? I missed it. Belief over base pairs. <laughs> Damn. Wasn't that good? That's really good. I know I know it's just a little tag on and you're used to like- you The tag, on, the tag on was so good. But you could see that being a shirt with like a T-Rex, like a swap T-Rex, right? Oh, that's Yeah, let's do it. Belief over base pairs. Yeah. Hell yeah. Oh yeah. Love it. Um, Strava hot take. Local legend crowns are better than segment trophies. I like this. So for those that don't know, local legend means you've run that part of the route more than anyone else. I 100% agree. It gets back to the process. I'm going to start thinking this too. I I, I don't sell, celebrate local legend crowns enough. So I'm going to start doing that for people. Whenever I see a local legend crown, I'm going to try to comment. Well, you can make your own Strava segments. So we have a Strava segment yeah. on our backyard trail. It's Serial Makes Champions. Yeah. And it's basically just us going back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. You've taken all of them recently though. Oh yeah. You I love been, I love running loops. You yeah. love running loops. You just repeat those bitches over and I'm over I'm not even doing it for the trophies. I'm doing yeah. it for the process. Yeah, the process of the loops. Granted, if you're in Boulder or, or California and you ever run into a segment that has like a really funny name with an exclamation point. Rest assured that was created by me. <laughs> and now I'm going to be create them to get those local legend crowns. Okay, number eight. This is relevant to worlds. Super steep technical single track is dumb. It's called trail running, not trail scramble, slip and slide, rock climbing. Okay, I don't really think it's dumb, but we've all had these moments, right? Oh, I've totally had this moment out there where I'm yeah. like, fuck this. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I love US racing. Like, worlds was awesome. But like at a certain point, do we need to go straight up and down the mountain constantly? Like, yes, the, the classic race was great that Grayson and Tobey did. That was really interesting. But the long race got a little bit excessive. And oh, that athletes- was not a little bit excessive. Yeah. It was a lot excessive. And I, we talk all the time about how in Europe, single tracks like or switchbacks aren't really a thing. Yeah. Well, they had switchbacks. It just the course wasn't taking. Them. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. The VK especially, they just yeah. like skip these switchbacks, go straight up. Um, I love this type of running. But I have to get in that mindset. And the problem with this type of running to me is you have to do more specific training for your legs not to get shredded. Yeah. Whereas like I kind of like trails more that 
you don't do them and then feel sore for eight days after. Agreed. Which is what happens to my body. Like, you know, I was talking about Drew's training a little bit on some of these steep trails or Allison. You know, the types of trails that they do, like the first time I do them, I actually literally get sore for five days. And I, it just, to me, it makes me feel a little beat up. Well, what I love is half marathons that have about yeah. a half mile of this kind of stuff. Because yeah, yeah, you're yeah. like, I'm such a badass. I'm so legit. But it only takes a half mile of focus yeah. and, and a half mile of quad slamming. And then you can post the photo from that section. Yeah, exactly. Section. Be like, look how technical this, yeah, yeah. this trail race was and the rest was on yeah. road. I averaged, I was so fast in this race. 12 and a half miles of it are literally on a track. And then a half mile has some rocks. Look at my five minute pace running down these slammed out yeah, rocks. Yeah, yeah. All, all the time. Okay, and then last one. Running is overrated. Jogging for the win. Oh, yeah. This is my jam. And if you're out there and you feel daunted at all by getting out the door, let's change from a running framework to a jogging framework. Because I try to start every run thinking jog city. Well, we start every run. The first two miles is jog city. Yeah. Actually, if you... I, I have gotten to the point, I used to be the one that was like pushing the pace in the beginning yeah. of runs. And now I'm like, this two miles, it's sacred jog city time. And yeah. now your aerobic system's gotten so much stronger mm-hmm. for it. Yeah. This Saturday, we did another Saturday tempo date and Megan set another three minute record on a on a big climb here um, uh, and at altitude too, where it has never been your jam. And it's all coming from that aerobic system, baby. Well, you know, you want belief over bait spares on a yeah. t-shirt. I want jog city, jog, jog city on, <laughs> yeah, on, yeah, yeah. on a t-shirt. Yeah. Uh, you're off of Rack City, yep, uh-huh. um, which I think is about strip clubs, right? Yeah, I think so. Rack City, Rack, 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 Rack City, bitch. Yeah, yeah. 10, 10, 20s, 20s on your... Titties, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I yes, can, I can, I can finish that. High five. <laughs> okay, so this is a I've really... never been happier than any moment in my entire life than that. This is a really dumb question. Yeah. Rack City is referring referring to the titties, right? <laughs> I actually have no idea. Wait, I, I have no, no idea no, either. I think, I think Rack is probably... Context clues in the rest of the song. I think it's probably referring to something else that I don't understand. You shouldn't have a white 34-year-old guy determining <laughs> we should just move song. on before we, we get canceled yeah, yes, yes, exactly it's a great song we respect it we love everything about it okay uh, talking about the running world now using this as a transition into some shorter distance training talk uh, it'll be a little longer episode but we'll try to keep it pretty uh, narrow first three world records or world bests were set first Faith Kip Yegon set the 5k record just after setting the 1500 record and she ran a 14.05 it was her second world record in eight days what is happening and holy shit she is bonkers and as we talked about on our last podcast, she took like 18 months off after giving birth. Yeah. Her comeback has been incredible. Yeah. And then Jacob Ingerbertson ran the two miles in 754. What? 357, 357. I mean, he actually ran the second mile faster than the first. But um, to give you an idea, two 357 miles back to back. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about him in a second. And then Lameka Gurma set the 3K steeple record for men in 758, which a 3K in 758 is insane. 3K at that pace... It's just wild. I, it's insane what's happening right now in the running world. We were sitting having lunch talking about these records, and you asked me to, to predict what the three k steeple what time was. And yeah, you know I had been a little off on the five k. I was I was slightly too high. That was a little off on the two miles, yeah, yeah. slightly too high. And then I said, you know what? It's a two minute three k steeple. <laughs> That's where my predictions were going. The best part is you just write two minutes. <laughs> like, I was just like, you're right, exactly. That's basically what it was. Um, so interestingly, Ingebrigtsen's coach is his dad, Geert, and he had this discussion about training. Um, that will be a little bit of a segue into to our discussion of um, training theory for short distances. We don't do any tests in training to gain confidence. So they mean like pushing all out in training. We do the training and the training is volume-based and threshold-based, threshold being easier intervals, moderate intervals. Um, The key competition is that there's also, or composition is that there's also some track work, but not much. 
So it's always a little uncertainty when you do your first track meet. You have to rely on the system for a long, long time. It's no quick fix. You have to adapt to the system. It may take one or two or three or four, maybe five years. But when you come out on the other side, having done all the work, you will guarantee success. I absolutely love that quote. I love the yeah. idea that training is not a test. Yeah. And I think every time as athletes, as elite athletes, if we go out and do workouts and they're a test, one, it's mentally grueling. That's exhausting. But I think it actually like impairs the body physi- yeah, physiologically in terms of long-term development because like we don't want these to be tests. We want them to be smooth. We want these to be lactate controlled. And if you're testing yourself, like they often aren't. Yeah. And I think that that might explain a lot of why these results are changing. And um, it's going to get into our discussion as training for shorter distances. But something to also give you a little bit of understanding of the track world is a poster that was at ACSM titled Comparative Effects of Advanced Footwear Technology on Running Economy in Track Spikes and Racing Shoes. And the basic takeaway here is that there's about a 2% difference now for track advanced track spikes, so they essentially have the advanced foam and a nice plate in it, versus the last generation of track spikes, which also had a little bit of a plate, but mm-hmm. it wasn't quite as much. So part of this is probably the spikes, um, and I think that's important, because if it weren't the spikes and we were seeing times skyrocket like this across the board, it should raise alarm bells in your head, not happy bells. Well, statistically, if a lot of the world records have been held by former dopers and we are crushing all yeah. of those world records, you'd be like, well, what is on the market? Like, what are what are athletes doing? But I yeah. do think a lot of it is explained by the spikes. I think also building the aerobic base. Definitely. Like, we... As, as a large like running society have focused on aerobic base building for a long time. And actually, can I read Ingebrigtsen's quote on this? Because Ingebrigtsen has developed his sons from a really young age. Yeah. And you know, we're starting to think about Leo as a young athlete. He's yeah. doing his standing training. We're thinking about his aerobic system. But I think like- I'm watching old videos of Earl Woods to practice <laughs> how I want to be a parent. Just like, <laughs> just drill him. Or uh, Todd Marinovich's father. Do you ever hear that story? Oh, no. Uh, he's the quarterback created in mm-hmm. the lab. Yeah. So his dad started training him as a quarterback from when he was like three years old and was having doing heavy lifting when he was like four in fourth grade. Oh my gosh. Um, and this quarterback ended up being like the a top pick in the NFL draft and then totally fizzled out because as soon as he was on his own, he had none of the tools for success. But that's my model. I'm going to raise Leo to be the very best quarterback. Roll Tide. I love it. It starts with standing training. <laughs> yeah. I let him fall. I was a spotter for him and I let him fall. And I, you were like, Megan, you shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, yeah. You need to let him learn his consequences. He's got to hit that ground. That's the only way to learn. Backup quarterbacks are caught in trust falls. We, Starting quarterbacks, they just fall. We start preseason football at age seven months <laughs> exactly. around here. But I think we're, le- we're raising this generation of kids that have grown up like high schoolers that have been focusing on building their aerobic base. And I love this quote from Ingebrigtsen um, about coaching young kids and young athletes. If you've done something to create that base, never mind what you did, if you cycled, if you run, or if you play football, whatever you do to start early with that kind of training, to build hard and then long, that's the engine. You have to train those things from an early age when you are growing. Because when you're finished going, you can't, when you're finished going, you can't build any more physically. You can train what you have. But if you do it an early start, you will grow your lungs. Your heart will grow along with your body. There will be natural stamina. I like and it. I feel like it's, yeah, it's aerobic base building from a young age, but through the lens of like multi-directional sports and movement yeah. patterns and tag and fun things. And I don't know, I feel like we've gotten a lot better at prioritizing that aerobic base. And I think that applies to everybody too. So, you know, if you're trying to create the best athlete in the world, yes, that matters a little bit at 12, you know, but if you're trying to develop the best athlete you can now, Going out on a walk is hugely beneficial. Mm-hmm. All of these, playing sports with your kids. Playing tech. Yeah, yeah. Go, going on a swing set, doing monkey bars. Like, try to be an all-around, treat your body as an all-around athlete like you're a kid. Like, and you're running too, like you're a kid. 
when you're doing hill strides, think recess. Like um, that type of thought process also leads to the best physiology, we think. When I was a kid, I was like age five, tens, tens, twenties on those city switch. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was doing when I was a kid. I'm glad you were the one doing that. Because if I was, I would be canceled. Um, okay, so now let's talk briefly about training for shorter distances. Um, this gets into some ideas of why we think this is happening, why the Ingebrigtsen method works. Um, and first, you know, I would say, Let's talk, think about Grayson. Like, you know, the way Grayson trained for Worlds was we tried to raise her threshold output as high as we possibly could. So the basic theory is as long as Grayson throughout any point in these races can clear lactate, Mm -hmm. um, she's going to excel and win. And the hard part about something like a VK is there's no time to clear lactate. Um, But if you do that constantly, you're going to be most equipped for very, very fast races. And that applies to her. It also applies to athletes doing these 50-mile long trail races. It's the same physiological processes happening at the cellular level, no matter how long the event is. And I think clearing lactate actually feeds into the tactical approach of the race, too, because you could see Grayson. So anytime that it leveled out, she was, like, relaxing her arms. You could see her, like, actually her brain tick on. Grayson has a great understanding standing of training theory. Yeah. And she's like, I need to clear lactate before this climb ahead. And I have channeled that whenever we do step <laughs> climbs now as tempos and we hit that nice, like flat or even descent portion yeah. in the middle of a long climb. It's like, relax. Cause I think my, my underlying nature is like, I want to turbocharge yeah, that. Yeah. It feels fast, but it's like, no, relax, easy effort, easy speed, clear that lactate. But a lot of the workouts that we do are focused around that, but it's also a racing tactic too. Definitely. And it, it plays together though, because if you're not very efficiently fit aerobically, mm-hmm. you're not actually going to clear lactate in that time anyway. So you are incentivized to push the the flatter portions. And that might be one place you've changed is you're so advanced aerobically now because you've trained easily that it's given you this pro- this perspective that you never had before mm-hmm. when you're probably one of the most anaerobically fit per- athletes in the world, but you know trained a little harder than you do now. Okay. So here's a great question from Patreon to tee up this discussion. I'm a formerly, formerly competitive men's 800 meter runner now in my early 30s. I kept in contact with speed intervals on the track since leaving competitive sport almost 10 years ago, including p- sub four minutes per mile pace work. But I'm progressively incorporating longer distances into my schedule as my body can endure only so much time in the Oval Office. With that said, I would like to spend a few years racing um, road and track miles in 1500s before I leap into long distance running with both feet. What kind of training plan and zone distribution would you recommend to build the speed and anaerobic capacity necessary to achieve this without beating up my body like the carefree collegiate <laughs> kid I used to be? Thank you for considering the question and for the terrific process or podcast. Well, I really like this question because yeah. it's building on everything that we just talked about with laying that foundation of the aerobic base and doing so for as long as possible. So like ideally if we can start that at age 12, great. But even if you haven't, like even if you have a low odometer on your like running mileage, that's great to like start the process of building aerobic miles and then thinking about lactate processing, just like Grayson, like how can we let the body become most efficient at clearing lactate? And that happens through lactate clearance, like smooth intervals, but also like, as we've talked about before, when you're doing that aerobic training, you're essentially building the factory to help you clear lactate, yeah, exactly, even yeah. if you're not specifically working on that mechanism by doing the easy running. Yeah, that's so brilliantly said. And if you haven't listened to our Threshold Training Explained podcast or our Norwegian episodes, those really dig into details on why lactate is such a heavy focus as a proxy for these variables. Mm-hmm on the aerobic side. So there's the aerobic side of the spectrum that is what drives performance from the 800 meters on up, but especially once you start to get into 1500 meters, we're talking 98, 99% aerobically driven. And so these types of events aerobically, you're producing a lot more lactate than threshold, right? So let's say at threshold, your one hour-ish effort, you're producing four millimoles lactate. These athletes might be in the double digits with lactate production, but what still matters is your ability to use that lactate as fuel and then clear it from the cells 
all of that comes from more moderate intervals, more controlled efforts. So all of these short distances, like the Ingebrigtsen brothers are showing, come from the ability to do controlled efforts aerobically. But then there's the other side of that too, which Mm -hmm. is the mechanical side, which is you need to be able to actually put out power with that aerobic engine. It gets back to our steep climbing. So for for trail runners, it might mean that your hill intervals are not so steep. Mm -hmm. For track runners, it means you still need to be able to touch the fast paces. But the difference is, and this is what this athlete needs to remember, you are not trying to train the aerobic system when you do faster intervals. Mm -hmm. You're trying to train the mechanical system. So don't race them. And they don't need to be long. Yep, exactly. Like you're not trying to go out and do... 600 meters hard. I was going to say 200 or 300 meters, I think yeah. on the track, perfect speed Maybe spot up for to this. 400. Yep. Mm-hmm. Maybe, but even then, that's only specific right before races. Um, so do your, essentially your strides year round. Like 200s are essentially 30 seconds or less for this athlete. And that's basically where we like to cap it when you're talking about mechanically focused work. So whether it's a flat stride or a hill stride, it is all about power. It is all about those fucking muscles going for it. You don't care about lactate because it's not about that. It's about how much power you can put out. So Every athlete out there, make sure you're doing your strides year-round. Stay close to that top speed. And I think another important point, too, is what Coach Ingebrigtsen said, is the idea that training should never be a test. But I think that in this process, race into shape. Like track racing, shorter distance racing, like you really need to do it to understand it and for your body to process and to understand that feel. So I think this is a great place where you can race into shape. And honestly, in in trails, we do that all the time, too. And I think use those to your advantages and try not to race your workouts, but race your races and use that as like, a workout to level up. Yeah. And the complicated thing is like Ingebrigtsen or all these people, they're so naturally fast that the game is a little different Mm -hmm. because they need very little speed work to be as fast as they are. Um, What I would say for most athletes, let's think about a season. You're trying to train for any shorter distance race or just trying to become a better athlete. And you can see this in our free training plans online on our website for like half marathon, marathon, things like that, Um, is to start the season you obviously you start with the base, but then it's okay to have some of your early workouts be really hard to work that mechanical system, whether those are short hill intervals or short intervals in general that are faster, like 15 by one minute on one minute off where the one minute on, so you don't really, you throw caution to the wind, you run mm-hmm. a little faster. Um, but after a few weeks of building that VVO2, so your velocity of VO2 or your output at high ends, then your intervals start to get more relaxed mm-hmm. and you start to focus on strides as your speed efforts. So then Everything's around critical speed or threshold. So basically anywhere from 30 to 60 minute effort on those intervals with your you know shorter rest in general is the way to progress that aerobic system. Um, and periodically pulse back in intense workouts. It's okay. It's not the type of thing where you can't do intensity because that can lead to a lot of rapid growth, um, but make sure it's not the sole way you approach it. So for this athlete, you should probably not be running four minute pace often if you want to run a four minute mile. And we're talking more like in the overall, like the overarching physiology here. Yeah. How would you, if an athlete came to you and said like, how many weeks do I need to do this? Yeah. How would you describe that to them in terms of like layering Ooh. in these workouts? So the initial fa- part of the phase or the part of the phase where you're getting race ready? Both. And I know there's lots of caveats. So there. the initial part of the phase, like once you have a base, I was actually thinking about this. I say that usually f- like four weeks of workouts focused on mechanical output mm-hmm. for an athlete that has none of that, yep. that's like less talented works for an athlete that's talented, like Grayson, two weeks. Um, and so the way I like to do it is he'll work out like six by two, eight by two minute hills, one minute intervals, two minute intervals, three minute intervals across three weeks. And mm-hmm. then everything else gets more controlled. I love that. After yep. that, um, for someone like Grayson, we did hill intervals initially when she was building back from her, she was injured last year and building back from that. Then one VVO2 workout and then it was straight into threshold mm-hmm. because she was then efficient enough. I was gonna say, I'm sure she lit her fire with the one yeah. VVO2 workout that she did. And she was like, I, I imagine like within a week or two, you could already see her numbers improving. Oh, I mean, it was it's shocking. 
It's a work of art. It's uh, it's so fun to coach someone like she'd be in the Louvre. Yeah, <laughs> it's incredible. I mean, like it, her Strava. It's go. Make sure you're following Grayson everywhere. Her, her Strava should be in the Louvre. Yeah, she's so inspirational. Um, but then as you're getting close to race season, one 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 mm-hmm. workout's enough. Ten yeah. by four hundred, um, where you're pushing harder is plenty to get the final adaptations for like essentially the nervous system, because there is an element of nervous system of like, Oh, I know how to do this. Mm -hmm. That is important. Um, but we would be uh, remiss if we didn't present the counterpoint. So there's a 2023 study that just came out in the journal of sports medicine, science and medicine. And it was called the effect of polarized training on cardiorespiratory fitness of untrained healthy young adults, a randomized control trial with equal training impulse. And I really like this study because they took these untrained adults and yeah. they put them into four different groups. And these are kind of the four different groups or three different, three, three groups in a control yeah. of how we think about like training theory. So one group is polarized and in that polarized training group, so they had 75% of time at Z1. So yeah. really building that aerobic base and then 25% of time in Z3, zone three in a three zone model. Yeah. So, so that's very, very, we're talking about three zones here. So zone three is zone five. Yeah. So they're spending a lot of time working that upper end, um, that upper end running economy, like yeah. really thinking about a lot of speed training. Uh, this is also probably quite hard on the body too. Yes. Um, there was a high intensity interval training group that was a hundred percent of time <laughs> in Z3. This would be, that's a lot. Yeah. That's miserable. That's miserable. That's you're basically training for CrossFit at that point. Yeah. yeah. And then the final one was threshold, which was 50% Z1. So very easy and 50% Z2, which is moderate. Obviously this is a little complicated because like true threshold training should also have some of the speed training that the Ingebrigtsen's talk about. Mm-hmm. You still be fast. Yeah. Um, but the findings here are really interesting because you can probably guess what happened. The polarized and the hit group increased their threshold more than the threshold group did. Um, so they all increased their VO2 and time to exhaustion, but polarized got the best. Hit also did very well. And points out that if you're untrained, you're going to get short-term benefits from going very hard. And that introduces complications because if you're just looking short-term, it makes sense to go very hard. But as Ingebrigtsen said, we're thinking one, two, three, four, five years down the line, and then the game starts to change a lot. And I think for most athletes, we're thinking about that. But I think every so often I have an athlete that is like functionally untrained, whether yeah. like like me coming back postpartum, I had a heart issue, had a baby, hadn't really done any training in Wait, a year. you had a baby? <laughs> what are you talking about? Where's Leo? Where did he go? I forgot about him. Oh no. Did I agree to another one of those? <laughs> you agreed to four of them. Just oh kidding. shit. Just kidding. But I mean, I mean, I think sometimes you can think of athletes like every once in a while I will do yeah. like a different approach in terms of where we're thinking about a little bit more of high intensity work at the start, yeah. perhaps in someone who, who doesn't have this huge base, but we're always thinking long-term. And yeah. the, the, that this complication introduces the place of training theory that is where I think the rubber really hits the road with different approaches. So all of these track athletes nowadays are probably coalescing around the idea that it, it comes from the aerobic system, mm-hmm. right? Yep. The the African runners have been doing that forever. Now in the West, we're starting to get you know more used to this type of approach. But a number of different studies and training theories also introduce harder workouts throughout a cycle mm-hmm. because um, there's a great 2022 study, the premier one on this, that essentially said, if you inject polarized training into advanced training programs, you will see higher growth that then steadies off after a number of weeks. So if you introduce, in, you know, introduce those periods of higher intensity, whether it's w- just one workout or a few workouts, you might see higher growth that helps an athlete reach the next level. So you can kind of do a stepwise function. Mm-hmm. You're not just doing aerobic intervals. You're mostly doing aerobic intervals and then occasionally doing a harder session, whether that's like five by three minute hills or a track workout where you're pushing more or whatever. Or a race. Yeah. yeah. Or whatever. Um, and by introducing that, by introducing pulses of polarized into a longer term pyramidal structure, then you can start to really level up mm-hmm. and accomplish something where like, you, right now, you might be thinking this to this listener that a 415 mile is your goal or a 410. But the way people are all running 358s now, 
is one, super spikes. So get a pair of super, super spikes. But two, this aerobically driven approach that has periods of speed in, mixed in throughout and then periods of very hard workouts thrown in after they've developed um, this aerobic base. Well, the way that I visualize this in my head in terms of like tracking progression, it's almost like yeah. a step climb. Definitely so yes. I love doing step climbs in training where you're, you know, you're running a steep hill and then you level yeah. out, you clear your lactate. And then, but I feel like if you tra- charted an athlete's progression, it would probably look a lot like a step climb Definitely, in terms yeah. of how this is looking, especially as you think about like macro cycles and micro cycles and making sure to dial back and have aerobic rebuild weeks in there too. I love how much that connects the step climb idea to the statistics jokes we were doing earlier. Oh about yeah, about like rev- view in that step climb, view it as a linear climb. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, and, but the point also being that it's not linear when you're no, talking steps. Yeah, like you're yeah. really talking something that looks different. And like a lot of the work that leads to the breakthroughs is not what you think it is because it's not the things that's immediately preceding it. It's, it's not the sexy stuff. It's just something that happened a year before exactly, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and sometimes even non-running stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so essentially make sure the aerobic system comes first, even if you're doing um, very short events. And the training that works for a mile run will be the training that works for 10 miles, which will be the training that works for 100 miles. And if there's nothing else you take away from us, remember – Output matters, but at the end of the day, it all comes from the aerobic system. Mm -hmm. So keep your speed high, but don't race your intervals because that leads to regression pretty quickly. I love that. This is how we can all channel our our inner Grayson Murphys. Oh my God, if only. If only, right? If only only I could be 8% Grayson Murphy. Okay, I actually think that was a really good training discussion. I'm I'm excited about that. Yeah. I I think what we just, I mean, it just came at the end of the podcast. Yeah, but I like how it built off of the Ingbertsons too, because like what they've been doing in training theory is so cool. Um, And I don't know, I feel like the the quotes in there really tied in well. And I think it ties to everyone. I think often athletes that are running 30 minute 5Ks think that the principles that of athletes that run 1240s don't apply to them. Mm-hmm. And the answer is it totally does. It's the same exact shit. The difference is for the 30 minute 5Kers, and, and similarly for every athlete that isn't like genetically gifted to the point of you know, it being like bonkers, um, they just need to focus a little bit more on mechanical output mm-hmm. because that's the unnatural part is like your velocity or your power at VO2. Like that's the part that doesn't come easily for you that might come easily for Ingebrigtsen. So focus on that a little more, but you can still have training not hurt. You don't have to test yourself. You can have it be this uplifting thing where your stepwise function might not reach you know, Olympic champion or world champion like Grayson, but that doesn't mean it's any less meaningful. Well, it's so much less daunting to go down. So we have a, a treadmill in our pancake yeah. and to go down and do a lactate controlled workout. Oh my God. It's so much. I actually like look forward yeah. to it and I look forward to like my heart rate dropping to the point where I can get to another effort because it's like, it doesn't hurt in the same way, but that's yeah. like where the sweet spot in training is. But the cool thing is though, after I've done those, in a really disciplined way because it's a place I'm actually not that disciplined as an athlete. Like I've had to work on this. I'm not either. Yeah. Yeah, But we've gotten better. Yes. Yeah. And and it's a place where coaching actually is good as an athlete because we we're able to eventually be like, okay, we get it. Ego. We can turn that off. Um, but after I do those types of lactate controlled workouts, like we're talking about and mix it with the speed, I find that when I actually go hard, it doesn't hurt. It's different. Yeah. It's our body is processing and clearing lactate differently. Yeah. Yeah. And so if it also feels different too, it feels so different. It feels so much better. Yeah. Um, so Chase that. You're chasing those good feelings, not just those good times. Oh, we're always chasing the good feelings around here. And speaking of, let's get to Listener Corner. I here love this. Oh, you want to read? Yeah, sure. You've, oh. been, you've been sheltering a lot of the reading burden, so okay. I can go for it. I've been on the fence about doing this particular race for weeks, flip-flopping every other day. 
Then I listened to Swap episode 152. You gave a recap of David's Canyons 100K experience and encouraged listeners to try the unthinkable. That's exactly what I needed to hear. (laughs) You gave me just enough courage to hit submit on the registration page. I had absolutely no expectations of finishing. I prepared for a DNF. I started thinking about when and where to call it quits about halfway through. Soon after that, though, a volunteer came along. She cheered me on in all the right ways. It's like she knew exactly what I needed to hear. With her help, I finished. Heck yes. I was dead fucking last and in pain, but I couldn't have cared less about any of that because I had just done the unthinkable. It was the hardest thing I've ever done, and I'm so incredibly proud. But I couldn't have done it alone. Without that kind volunteer, I'm sure I would not have finished. And without you both, I wouldn't have even started. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Thank you for the encouragement and the motivation to take on the unthinkable. How incredible is this? Ah, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I love it so much. If you're out there, Go do something scary. Well, like, also be that volunteer. Yeah. Yeah. Do something scary, but then also pay it forward because yeah. like people around us are doing scary things every single day. Belief over base pairs, motherfuckers. Oh yeah. Dump that Perrier on yourself. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. And just like to really underscore this point, like this listener is saying they finished last and they are proud of that. And that's what we want you to take away from this podcast is like, you know, when we're talking about training theory, we're talking about like, if you can finish last like, but one second faster, that is a worthwhile pursuit in your life. And, um, yeah, to this listener, you're incredible and so inspired by you, but to everyone do something scary. It it can be a mile race. It doesn't need to be a hundred mile race. It can be anything. Um, but put yourself out there. Even if it's just local legends, that counts too. This is why running is so magical. Yeah. Is you can get local legends on Serial Makes Champions segments. (laughs) If anyone comes from our Serial Makes Champions segment, though, I'm handing out some bitch bitch tokens because I'm going to come back. I'm going to run 87 times in a single day if I have to. Those swap podcast uh, patches, they're just going to be bitch tokens. (laughs) Bitch tokens. You know what I want right now? What? A hot tub with you first. And as always, our listeners can join us. We've been doing that post every podcast. It's such a fun way to decompress. It's going to be so fun. We should just record a podcast sometime out there. Oh, shit. Oh, man. With the bubbles? Yeah. Oh, just imagine yourself in there with us eating some honey nut checks. Oh, it's going to be so delicious. We love you all. Woohoo! Huzzah!